And then once again, you know, I, I kind of lost everything. Like, I, ha I don't have a job. And once again, it's like, okay, is this like something I'm supposed to learn in my life where I just keep going through this sort of thing over and over again, even when I finally feel like I've succeeded? Maybe, maybe I am an imposter. But then there's a part of me that still feels like, no, I'm not going to lay down my sword and stop fighting. I am not going to behave in the way they want me to behave. I'm going to fight for my rights now. That was Miyoko Skinner, the creator, founder, and former CEO of Miyoko's Creamery. And this is Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro. Welcome back to another episode of Are You Ready with Joanne Molinaro, where we talk about how to get ready to live a more purposeful and empowered life. This week, you're going to hear from a woman who wears many hats. She's a cookbook author and a chef, self-confessed turophile and cheesemonger, animal lover and activist, restaurant developer and entrepreneur. She is a philosopher, a traveler, a mother, a guardian. I first discovered Miyoko at the grocery store. Like many of you who are either vegan or lactose intolerant, I was looking for a dairy-free butter that was a cut above margarine. I had just thrown out the seven different kinds of butter I kept in my fridge. I was a newbie baker who appreciated the regional distinctions of churned cream, and I didn't think a vegan butter could ever approximate the richness I'd given up when I finally went plant-based. But lo and behold, in the dairy aisle, I spied a box with navy blue font called Miyoko's European Style Butter that promised precisely that. I dropped a box into my cart, and when I got home to my kitchen, I was thrilled to find that Miyoko's promise, well, it delivered. Miyoko's Creamery, formerly Miyoko's Kitchen, was started in 2014. By 2016, the company had grown over 300% year over year and set up shop in a 28,000 square foot production center smack in the middle of a bunch of traditional dairy farms in the Bay Area. Because that's the kind of woman Miyoko is. If you're going to start a non-dairy creamery, do it in the dairy capital of California. I suppose it was only a matter of time before the brewing conflict between dairy versus non-dairy came to a head and Miyoko was ready for it. In 2020, the creamery sued California's Department of Food and Agriculture to maintain the company's right to use the words butter and cheese on its packaging and marketing materials. Miyoko's won. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end of Miyoko's legal battles. As some of you may know, Miyoko was removed as CEO of the company that bears her name in June 2022. Earlier this year, the company sued Miyoko under various legal claims. Miyoko countersued for wrongful termination, gender discrimination, retaliation, and unlawful use of her likeness. Just a couple weeks ago, the company and Miyoko issued a joint statement, indicating that all legal claims against each other had been dropped. I met with Miyoko after the lawsuits had been filed, which was when I recorded this podcast. I met with her once more after the claims had been dropped during the Vegan Women's Summit. I will say two things. Miyoko deserves our respect for her privacy. And as such, I made it clear to her that I wouldn't pry into the controversy swirling around her. But also, Miyoko Skinner is many things. 
But above all, Miyoko is a fighter. Thank you so much for having me here, Miyoko. It is an utter delight to have you guys yes, here. Yes, and it is an utter honor for me to be sitting here. <laughs> I so, can say the same to you. Oh, so That's very surreal. I don't normally do this, but I do want to make sure we cover this, and, and I'm fine with it being recorded. I want to make sure that we're very careful about talking about anything that's happening today in terms of what's going on with the litigation. You know, I'm putting my lawyer hat on a little bit here I appreciate for that. that. We're just going to kind of fence that off for now, at least. And we want to just be very careful about what we say. But other than that, I'm here because I'm mostly interested in your story long before all of this stuff started happening. And it's a story that I don't think many people know. I feel like it's been written about here and there and you've shared it in sort of different places. But I think everybody kind of associates you with cheese which totally makes sense, <laughs> cheese and butter, you know, and, and your cookbooks and things like that. But there was, you know, a restaurant, there was a meat alternative, there were multiple businesses. In fact, you actually worked at a law firm, I think, at a certain point in your life. And these are things that I think are just so amazing and I definitely wanted to tackle. So with that, I actually want to start all the way back when I think you were 12 years old and from what I understand, you went on a camping trip with your school peers and you came home and you said, hey, everyone, I'm vegetarian now. I'm not going to eat meat. Is that pretty accurate in terms that, of... <laughs> yeah, I would say in a nutshell, that's that's pretty much what happened. I was on this camping trip for a few days and ate the most miserable vegetarian food. <laughs> I ate millet for the first time. Wow. And, and the person who prepared it had no idea how to cook. And so it was just boiled in water. And if you've ever, you know, if you're like a rice eater like me and you are, we just cook rice in water. We don't add anything to it. But no it has, salt. No, no salt, <laughs> but it has so much flavor. You, know, you can just eat rice plain. 100%. But millet plain is just God awful. <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, I mean, do vegetarians eat like this? But I went home and it had left this indelible imprint in my mind about the life of an animal that I was eating. My mother put pork chops in front of me, which were my favorite food. I had immigrated to the United States just really maybe five years before then. And pork chops had become my all-time favorite food. Like I just couldn't believe how, you know, I wanted it all the time. And I couldn't eat it. Mm -hmm. I, I just pushed it away and that was it. I, there was no looking back. I never once ever desired to eat meat ever again. There was not a moment of yearning. So notwithstanding boiled millet and the horrifying vegetarian food that you were introduced to, what was it that compelled you at that young age and so definitively, meat is no longer going to be in my life? Well, I think, you know how it is in, in kids' minds, like they, they make a connection that is indescribable. There's no logic behind it. But in one instance, I saw a connection between the animal and what was on my plate. And I just wasn't able to eat it. Mm -hmm. And it just, it was like, I'm not going to eat this vase because it's made out of glass. It's not food. This table is not food. And animals just cease to be food to me. Mm. I mean, there was really no explanation whatsoever. Mm -hmm. As far as cooking was concerned, I think it was sort of a blessing in disguise because my mother stopped cooking for me. Right. I mean, she was so horrified by the fact that I had gone vegetarian that she just said, you're on your own. And, and that was the beginning of the exploration of food for me. And it was wonderful because I started cooking and reading books and cookbooks. I started reading nutrition books. 
and really thinking about food, thinking about food not just as something to fill a 12-year-old kid's belly, but but how do I drive the most nutrients from it? You know, what is protein? What are vitamins? I mean, these are not things that 12-year-old kids back in the 1960s think about or thought about, but I did. And it, I developed a passion for food at that point. I get this question all the time from young people who are trying to adopt a more you know, plant-centric, you know, plant-based, vegetarian, and sometimes even vegan diet, usually between 11, 12, 13, even 16 years old. I'm a kid. My parents are not supportive of my choice to adopt a vegan diet. What am I supposed to do? How do I do this? What advice do you have? Because it sounds like your mom was like not on board. No. You no. didn't have a way. I mean, you essentially had to cook your own meals. Like, is there some sort of like, here are top five tips for teenagers? Oh my God. <laughs> I, I think they're really terrible tips because I did have another <laughs> friend who was in that vegetarian group and she wanted to be a vegetarian. And she said, my mom won't let me. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, there was a rebellious streak in me from the time I was very, very young. And which is just so un-Japanese because Japanese girls are taught to behave a certain way. And my mother was always horrified because I was always getting in trouble. The teachers would say, I talked too loud. I spoke inappropriately. I fought back when I should have complied. So I think I've always had this sort of rebellious streak and I just didn't care. And you know, made it, I made life hard for my parents, I think. But so I don't have any tips other than, you know, if you believe in something and you're a kid, maybe there's a reason you believe in it. Maybe there is a fundamental core belief, uh, knowledge that, that kids, I think, are born with, which is compassion. And then we, we train that away through normalization in our food culture. But if you really feel something strongly and all of a sudden you see an ethical connection with your food and animals, then... I think it's not too young to stand up for your rights. I think that's so important for young people to hear because I think that there is a delegitimization that occurs very, very early on, which is this idea that a young person's beliefs or ideas are dismissible. They're not real. They're still learning, you know, what the right way to do things are. And there is Mm -hmm. certainly a bit of learning that is happening, a lot of learning that happens in a young person's life, but that also doesn't mean that they're not capable of having fundamental core beliefs about what is right, what is just, what is fair, and what is healthy, all of these types of things. And just knowing that they're allowed to stand up for themselves. It's never too young. You're never too young to start thinking about justice. That's so true. One of the things you just said about your very un-Japanese view to be so rebellious, I wanted to talk a little bit about your mom. From what I understand, your parents were separated at least earlier on in your childhood? Well, my father's American, Uh and so he didn't live with us. I grew up in Japan with my mother, Mm -hmm. and so I saw a very strong, capable woman. She had her own business, a stuffed animal business. And then eventually, I don't really know why, because I was, you know, six or seven at the time, my father and my mother finally got married, and we moved to the United States. So they weren't, they were separated in the beginning, and then they came together, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. is kind of odd, but... So your mom was essentially like single momming it for a little bit in the beginning? In Japan, during a period when being a single mom was something that was looked down upon. And so she, I think she, in many ways, she was a brave woman. 
she became weaker when she came to the United States. Really? Like she never really fully adjusted to the to life in the in America. Uh, yeah. I think that it's very interesting that she was horrified by your rebelliousness yes. at not eating meat. <laughs> Maybe I was just like following. The yeah, like Apple didn't <laughs> fall far from the tree. It sounds like oh <laughs> a very strong, capable, and brave woman. <laughs> So you turned vegetarian when you were 12 years old. I have to, like, was, was veganism even a word oh, at no, that time? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. I okay. I didn't hear that word until I was in my 20s. So you're avoiding meat, but you're still eating dairy and you're still, oh, you know. I, I ate a lot of dairy, <laughs> which, is, which is really funny because, you know, when I was in Japan as a child, we didn't eat any dairy. Mm. Um, I remember the very first time I had ice cream, for example. I remember the very first time I had cheese in the United States on a pizza and I thought it was disgusting, and I couldn't understand how anybody could eat this stuff. So the cheese woman used oh to think God, that cheese was disgusting. No, I just, I mean, I bit into this pizza because I really thought it was the moment I was going to become truly American, and all of a sudden, like, there's this grease, like, dripping down my face, and I thought, oh, my God, how can people eat this stuff? Because, you know, Japanese food's really clean. Mm-hmm. There's very little oil used in traditional Japanese cooking, and so I just grew up eating really light food. And so eating something that was really cloyingly heavy and oily was just, I don't know, disgusting. So this, and by this time you're in the United States again, right? And you're, you know, when you're vegetarian, you're in the United States. Was it difficult then for you as someone who didn't necessarily like cheese? Because we always hear from people, oh, the hardest thing about, you know, going vegan is, you know, giving up cheese or giving up butter, giving up cream. Ultimately, when you decided to go vegan later on in life, was that difficult for you? Oh, yes. So I don't have a vegan anniversary, like a lot of people who say, I chose this day and I went vegan. It was sort of a gradual transition for me where I was mostly vegan. And the reason I wasn't 100% is I would occasionally eat a piece of pizza and, you know, uh, nosh on some brie or camembert or something like that. And then over the years, I gradually phased that out. But there was very little information in the 1980s when I did go vegan. I was in Japan alone as a vegan. It was a challenge. As you probably know, in Asia, they use a lot of fish broth and fish stock and fish this, that, and the other thing. And so while it was easy to avoid dairy in Japan, it it was hard to avoid fish. So for me to be a vegetarian in Japan meant that I had to eat mostly Western food. So I would choose Indian cuisine or Italian or, or something that had cheese or cream in it. Mm-hmm. I could even go to a French restaurant and get something with, with cheese in it. But go, going to a Japanese restaurant meant that I would have to eat something that had fish in it. And so it, it's, it's still a challenge in Japan getting something without Without bonito stock, you know, broth. It's the same in Korea. Very hard without anchovy broth. Right, right. Mm -hmm. It's very, very hard. So it was hard going vegan and it it limited where I ate, where I ate a lot at home. I was particular about asking for things to be prepared a certain way, but it was definitely hard in the 1980s. And so I think there was a a period of transition that I would say, you know, I was 98% vegan. I was always vegan at home, but there was like little transition kind of cheating when I went out. 
which I think is totally understandable given the circumstances that the concept had only just arrived on the scene maybe a decade earlier and... Well, maybe here, but I mean, not in Japan. Certainly. Well, the thing is, it's funny because Japan actually has something called shoujin ryori, which is traditional Japanese Buddhist cooking, which is 100% vegan. And there's a whole history of veganism. The word veganism doesn't exist. Exactly. But Japan was, uh, by royal decree, a vegan country for 800 years. I think that's so incredible because it's the same way in Korea. Temple cuisine in Korea is plant-based. But if you ever ask a monk, hey, I'm vegan. Do you know what veganism is? They, they don't know. They're just like, you know, know deer in headlights, right? right, right. <laughs> what are you even yeah. talking about? This is just yeah. the way that we've eaten for a thousand years. <laughs> but, you know, nowadays in Korea, and I, I don't know if it's the same in Japan, you know, Temple cuisine is having its its renaissance. Yes, you know, there's yeah. Michelin rated restaurants that are temple cuisine. Oh my God, yeah, the temple cuisine is just exquisite. Beautiful. So beautiful. There is nothing like that. Yeah, it's yeah. absolutely yes. incredible. Most people know Miyoko as the creator of their favorite vegan butter and cheeses, the vocal animal rights activist, the Asian American entrepreneur. But I wanted to hear more about the person she was before all of that to see what parts of her less obvious journey helped to form the woman she is today. So when I go back to between the age of like 12 and 18, you're a teenager. Where in the United States did your parents move to? Well, actually right here in Marin County. So I grew up in Mill Valley. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was a funny little town back in the day, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s. All these rock musicians lived there and you'd be walking down the street and Stephen Stills would be driving by in wow. his Mercedes and... It was a, a cool little town. It's it's now sort of this yuppie dumb, which is kind of I try to avoid it now, but <laughs> So did you do a lot of cooking during that time? Were you still required to cook for yourself? Oh I did, yeah. And, and actually I had graduated to cooking for my brother and my father frequently. My mother would say, oh, I'm so tired today. Can you can you cook dinner? Oh wow, how the tables have literally turned. Yes. <laughs> Well, so then you must have gotten really good if your mother was relying on you to cook for the family. I, I think, you know, I think I was a pretty good cook. And I, I loved having these little baking contests at my house with my friends. And of course, I used lots of eggs and sugar and, and you know, dairy. And I wasn't shy. In fact, I ate so much dairy. My father used to eat. It, it was a weird household because, you know, most, most of the friends that I grew up with either ate, they ate cheddar and Swiss or Monterey Jack. Those are the three cheeses. Or, very you know, American. Yeah, they were yeah. very American. My house, we had Limburger and, and Gouda and Jarlsberg and Camembert and Roquefort. And so I grew up eating this stuff and I just grew to love funky cheese. If you open up a refrigerator, you could smell the cheese. And I think that's how I became a cheese lover. Mm. It was I was indoctrinated by my dad. And by the time I was in college, I was having you know, little wine and cheese parties every Friday night. I oh just my gosh. loved exploring cheese. So by the time you got to college, was there any thought to pursuing a culinary career or was that purely just a means of survival and a fun sort of hobby? No, I actually did consider it, but the only culinary schools that were open at the time would have required me to handle meat. Mm. And I just... Mm couldn't see myself doing that. I considered going to, to a cooking school several times. Like I played around with it in my mind. Like I would really love to do this professionally. Would this be really cool? But I just couldn't wrap my head around having to, you know, handle a rack of lamb. Like that just was disgusting to me. So I just continued to play around on my own. You know, I worked at a couple of restaurants. I had a friend of mine who was a caterer. And so I moonlighted helping her during college. 
And I learned a lot from her. Well, that's a, that's very important. Like having multiple different ways of learning how to cook instead of just sticking with cookbooks or, you know, certainly when I was growing up, all I did was watch Food Network and that's how I learned right. to cook. But I've learned over the years, the more type of culinary influences that you can have in your life, just like the cheese, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just sticking, just sticking to Monterey Jack and, you know, cheddar and, the, you know, whatever Swiss, you know, being sort of exposed to a broad range of different flavors and techniques is, I think, incredibly important. What did you ultimately end up studying in college then? Philosophy. <laughs> Okay, so I'm so curious. What made you choose philosophy? Well, I actually, so that's a whole long story. So I didn't actually choose philosophy. I chose a school called St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland, that is based on the the great books of the Western world. Mm. And there are no textbooks. You only read original works. Amazing. Way through history. And everyone studies the same curriculum. So the entire... The entire school, all the student body, I mean, there's only 400 students there. They've all read the same book. So you can have a a conversation with, the professors are called tutors. You can have a conversation about Hegel or Plato with anybody. And so everything is about really just learning to think about the meaning of life through throughout history, through these books, through the experiences of these authors and, and having conversations around them. If you listened to last week's podcast, then you'll know that once I started to delve into the structure of my own veganism, I ended up squarely in the same place that Miyoko began, asking myself, what is the meaning of life? So in case you can't tell from my voice, I was extremely excited to hear from this towering giant in the vegan community explain, in her own words, what that existential confrontation revealed to her. What about this approach to education appealed to you? So I actually went to art school for a year and went to Pratt Institute in New York for a year. And I just, I found that I had a lot of questions. I I was asking why this, why that? And I found that the students there were happy learning how to draw and then hanging out, you know, and I don't know, whatever, discussing what they had at the lunch, you know, for lunch or or what they were going to do over the weekend. And I just had a much more inquisitive mind about, I hate to say it, but the meaning of life or truth of the capital T. And I just, I was heard about the school from several other people, from several students. I went to, I went to visit it and I just found that that was the place for me. And I had a very wonderful four years there. And I I know people say, well, what kind of, you know, you, you don't learn a skill, you graduate with with a degree in philosophy and a minor in mathematics, and and what are you going to do with that? And a lot of St. John's graduates go on to being, uh, the, the two top professions are, well, they take an academic mm-hmm. career or they become a lawyer. Those are, they seem to be the the preponderant careers. But I found that, that it taught me how to, it taught me how to think, it taught me how to learn. That was, I guess, it taught me how to learn. So Everything I've done in life, whether it's thinking about veganism, thinking about what's going on in the plant-based industry right now, how does it impact the world? How do you infiltrate society? How, how do you actually advance this movement? These are all questions that I often find that people in the industry, there's like this echo chamber and everyone's kind of saying the same thing and people don't stop to think about, okay, why is this not working or why isn't that working? And so I feel like just the way I learned how to think at St. John's has helped me figure out how to start businesses, how to how to f- market a product, how to do this, that, or the other thing. So I feel it's been invaluable to me. And also to really think about the meaning behind all of this. Mm-hmm. 
the meaning of who we are as human beings at this point in history and what our role is today is going to be critical to defining the future of the planet. And we really have to think about that very, very deeply. What I think is so fascinating is that it sounds to me that even at a very early age, probably even before you were 12 years old and you decided to go vegetarian, was that there was at least some part of you that was constantly asking that question, what is the point of all of this? What is the meaning of all of this? And I, you know, and I think I was saying this earlier when we were having lunch is that I have never been in a situation where I have so closely taken a look at these very fundamental mm -hmm. questions about what is the meaning of life? What is the point of this? How do we grapple with death in a way that defeats despair? And all of those questions became much more urgent when I became vegan. It is very interesting how that intersection occurred when I intentionally chose compassion and in a very like thoughtfully ethical mm -hmm. way, not just in a practiced way, like, oh, I'm vegan now. Like, no, I, I really wanted to understand my veganism and, and the ethical tenets mm -hmm. underlying these choices that I was making on a daily basis. Once I started really looking into that, then I really had to grapple with these questions about what is the meaning of life? What is the point of human beings? What are, what are we, yes. you know, as a species, what is our role here on this planet? And what are the basic fundamental exigencies that drive our behavior, right? And when you start asking those questions, I think that philosophy, which is what you studied, becomes such an important part of not just how we think, but how we act towards each other, how we act towards other animals. And then of course, the obligation that we have as custodians of this planet. Did any of those things like come into play while you were in college? Like, did you take an animal ethics course? Was one even offered? No, 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 no. I mean, it, uh, you know, our, during our freshman year, we studied the ancient Greeks. So we read all of their, you know, we read Plato, we read Aristotle, we even read Euclid. Euclid's elements. <laughs> why not? So why, and then, you know, read the Greek tragedies, things like that. And then you kind of work your way up through history. So no, I mean, there were no classes on animal ethics or there were no electives. I mean, you literally, that was, there was one curriculum and that was it. Mm. So except for when you write your, your paper, you know, senior thesis or something, and then you choose something. So no, I mean, I, I, that was not really a discussion. I, I'm not even sure that I thought deeply about the role of animals. Like, I, you know, I, I lived up here and I drive along and I see these cows grazing the grass and it's just like their lives never really occurred to me. Like I never really thought profoundly about them, except that I wasn't going to eat them. And that was it. Mm -hmm. But I think humanity's come a long ways. I don't think it was, it's just me, but, but everybody, you know, we're all, our approach to animals has evolved from the time 50 years ago, when we used to tie our dogs up in the backyard to now sleeping with our dogs. I mean, mm -hmm. that alone is, I think, just symbolic of, of what could happen with all other species. And there's so much change that I believe is occurring among the so-called ardent animal lovers who are even, let's say, veterinarians. We, t we were talking about that earlier, how veterinarians have two roots, either domestic animals or food animals. And they've never really thought about the sentience of the animals that they're treating, and they treat them only to keep them long enough so they can kill them, at a, so that they can be healthy to serve us. But even veterinarians are changing. I mean, I think the entire 
I think our consciousness towards animals as a species has begun to change. Mm. And I think that is very, very hopeful. And I think we have to keep on focusing on that aspect if we're really going to fundamentally change how we evolve as a species, how we maintain this, the planet that we live on for everybody. We can't just think about our health. We can't just think about even sustainability. I mean, that, I hate that word in some ways because sustainability means let's sustain the planet for our purposes. Mm. And we're really not thinking about the animals in the midst. So we forget that we're not just their custodians, we're their fellow citizens, that they are also entitled to live on this planet according to their wishes and needs. And you know, we really, all of us, have to continue to evolve our consciousness, but I think we are. I mean, I, we're just in the very beginning of that, and so it's hard to understand that. One of the things I've learned over the past seven years is that there isn't one form of activism. In fact, activism needs to be diverse in order to remain effective. From what I've observed over the years, instead of requiring people to adhere to a particular form of activism, the most impactful type of activism usually extends from a person's God-given talents and even ambitions. Nor does activism need to be limited to nonprofit, public policy, and government. In a society dominated by the dollar, activism needs to participate meaningfully and strategically in that commercial dialogue. I thus wanted to hear about how Miyoko decided to take her philosophy degree and become a businesswoman. I soon learned that her story, particularly at the beginning, was not without its barriers, from the man who told her never to go into business to the Japanese mafia. Miyoko's rise to girl boss was about as fraught as you can imagine. So one of the things that you've done in terms of contributing to that understanding, if you will, and to that progression is, I think, as you mentioned, the the schooling that you received at this college set you up to be a business person, an entrepreneur, essentially. Was that oh. something that like you thought of doing when you went into college? Like, I'm going to get this degree and I'm going to learn about philosophy and then I'm going to open a business? No, no. I mean, I, I, la that was the last thing I thought of doing. I mean, no, I mean, the, the college doesn't train you to be a business right. person. There's no MBA. <laughs> it's the last thing to think about. You don't think about earning money at the college. Like, you never do. Like, mm -hmm. that is almost like not allowed to talk about money or your job. In fact, we had this joke called reality, which is like we were in a bubble and the outside world was the real world, the rea reality. And all of us were confused about like, when I have to step out into that real world, what am I going to do? Because it was just not a practical education. It was really about internally thinking about all these things. So... I actually went back to Japan. I felt like I needed to retrace my roots back to Japan. And at, at the time, I wanted to, after being in Japan for a year or so, I was going to move to New York and be a jazz singer. So that was what I was, you know, thinking of doing. But somehow I ended up staying in Japan. And the last thing I ever thought about was going into business. In fact, I had a good friend, an older businessman, with whom I had a very platonic relationship. And I mean that. In, the, in two senses, it was platonic and we discussed Plato. So he said to me, I, I was like, what am I gonna do the rest of my life? And he said, you, you know, you're so talented, you're smart, you can do anything, just don't ever go into business. Mm. And a couple of weeks later, I, I guess I was following the footsteps of my mother and my father because they were entrepreneurs. 
I ended up, I'd gone vegan at that point, and I started a little bakery. And what was the name of this bakery? It was called, oh my God, you're going to laugh. Oh no, okay. what is it? It was called Madame Miyoko's. <laughs> Madame Miyoko. Oh my God, but that's so okay. perfect. That's so perfect, because you love cheese. <laughs> well, anyway, so I made these pound cakes, Oh. and I, I delivered them, I don't know, you may have heard this before, I, I, I didn't have a car in Tokyo, so... I had a big backpack. Yep. And I put 60 of them. They're poundy. 60? Yep. 60 I, pounds of pound And I deliver them by subway train. So I've done it my fair. I mean, I see, see all the stuff you brought to do this podcast, <laughs> but I, I'm telling you, I've spent my life schlepping, carrying things. And, that, and you were just, it was just you? It was just me. So I, you were baking. I would the, bake two days a week, deliver two days a week, and then I'd spend a day doing the books and calling customers and things. And how did it go? I mean, it it landed me various other gigs. Like one thing's, you know, I did a, what are they called? Roadshow at a couple of different department stores. It led to a few other gigs. I ended up designing menus for a couple of restaurants and got articles. And so it was kind of taking off. And then I thought, oh, I want to open a vegan restaurant in Tokyo, the very first. And I was going to do like a prefix menu, 12 course dinner, tasting menu type thing. And so I met this guy who was a restaurant owner. And this was in Japan. This is in Japan. Mm-hmm. We were going to start a, a restaurant together, and things are going really well. And we we're going to raise some money and open this fancy schmancy place. And then it turned out he was connected to the Yakuza, the Japanese, uh, Japanese mafia. Whoa. And the reason I found out was I was also moonlighting as a jazz singer. So I had, you know, little gigs here and there. Like, I'm talking like $50 gigs or, you know. So you were making. Pound cakes, delivering was, them all yeah, over the yeah, place. And I would sing at night. And <laughs> oh blah, my blah. god! Anyway, so he wanted, and then I was working on a book, cookbook in Japanese, and he said, "Okay, we're partners, which means I get half of everything you do." And I said, "No, you get half of the restaurant. That's the deal. But the, these other things I'm doing on my own." And then next thing you know, I started getting these threatening phone calls. People were knocking on my door at 3 a.m., telling me that I was, you know, basically threatening my life. And I'd also begun cooking, doing cooking classes at some prestigious Japanese cooking schools, and they started getting calls. I started getting calls from these schools saying, we can't, we're canceling your course because we've gotten these calls and blah, blah, blah. And he made it impossible for me to work in Japan. And I went to the police and they said, well, you know, there's been no physical harm to you yet, so we can't do anything. It's just, anyway, my life became a nightmare. I couldn't sleep at night. This was just terrible. And so I just, I got out of Dodge. I moved back to the United States. I just didn't know what else to do. How old were you at this time? I was probably 29 and or so, I think. You had, did you have any family with you in Japan at this time? I had gotten married. So I had a husband. He was mm-hmm. the sweetest guy in the world, but I couldn't, you know, he didn't speak any English. He didn't see how he could live here. And so we decided to part ways and I came after I moved back to the United States, I was going to see, okay, maybe I can live, move back to Japan, but I never did. Wow. So you were literally run out of town by... I was literally the, run out of town by... by the Japanese mafia. Yeah. Well, was, yes. I don't know that he was actually in... The, he had mafia connections, connections, which is what a lot of these you know, restaurateurs have. Oh and so God. he just employed a few of them to make my life miserable, and I just couldn't live there anymore. When I first went vegan back in 2016, let me just say, the options weren't the best. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it was like for vegans back when Miyoko was lugging around 60 pounds of pound cake while out running the mafia. 
Which is why, as a person who also loved butter and cheese, I'm really grateful that Miyoko figured this out for all of us. Speaking of figuring it out, if you want a little peek behind Miyoko's curtain, get a whiff of how she creates these seemingly impossible recipes, listen up. So I wanted to step back a little bit because when you said vegan pound cake, that is like a talisman for me because I think vegan pound cake is one of the most difficult things to actually achieve. And I can't even imagine having to do it back then when there were no blogs, there was no internet, the veganism was still fairly new on the scene. And that was, like you said, in, in Western countries, let alone in Japan. What sort of resources were you using in order to come up with a vegan pound cake or vegan anything at that point? Well, it's not, it wasn't just a vegan pound cake. It was made with okara. What's that? Which is the byproduct of tofu making. It's the high fiber part of the soybean. Oh, so that's what you were using for the protein and the yeah. structure. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So like when you're thinking about these things, is these just naturally come to you? Oh, well, I need to make a pound cake and I know that it requires structure and protein and therefore I'll just use tofu. Well, you know, yeah, I use tofu for a lot of things, in fact. I, but I don't know, my mind just, I think about food a lot. And I think about the components, like I, I was always reading packaging and figuring out how do they make this? Like what went into this? And then I think, I, it's just, you know, it's, it's something that naturally comes to me. Of course, I did my fair share of reading cookbooks growing up all through high school, all through middle school, all through high school, you know, all through college. I read not just vegetarian, there were vegetarian cookbooks. I don't think there were a lot of vegan ones at the time, but I also read, you know, Julia Child. I learned a lot about French cooking from her. I read... I know, Cordon Bleu. I read like whatever I could get my hands on, the Time Life series of The Good Cook. I read it all. Mm. And I learned techniques, whether it was for meat or eggs or whatever. And I learned about what their properties were, how they behaved. And then I tried to figure out, okay, you know, eggs, they bind and they leaven. What else could I use? How can I, you know, they also add a little bit of fattiness and structure. Like, you know, I don't know. I just would think that way without actually studying it. Well, and the other surprising thing is it sounds like it was catching on. I mean, you were being invited at prestigious cooking schools. People were buying your pound cake. Somebody wanted to open up a restaurant with you. That's pretty astonishing back in the day in Japan. Yes. I mean, I, I think I had a, a good thing going for a little bit. <laughs> Before the uh, ma- yeah. mafia kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, because even today, I mean, what, what is veganism like in Japan today, if you know? Well, it depends on where in Japan. So Tokyo apparently has over 200 vegan restaurants. Oh, amazing. It's, it's really, really caught on, but it's more popular among women and they do it for beauty. Yes. That's very much yes. like in Korea. It's yes. a, it's like a vanity, lose weight yes. kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, I, I remember talking to this guy in Japan a few years ago who was head of, who had founded a, I don't know, ethical animal rights association. I can't remember what it was called exactly, but he was just... He was a little frustrated. He complained about that. He said, you know, there's a lot of increasing number of vegans, but they're not in it for the animals. I think it's beginning to catch on, but it was funny. I was there in Japan just a few weeks ago. I went to visit my son who lives outside of Tokyo in this this industrial town where his basketball team is located. And there was this, this strip, this road where they have all these girls clubs, which means, you know, Sexy hot babes, ah, you know. Uh-huh. Those so, kinds of clubs, yeah. yes. Yeah, they're called girls clubs. And there was a girls club called Vegan. What? I thought it was hilarious. It was like, girls club, vegan. Like, I have no idea if the guy even knows what it means. <laughs> but he named his strip club vegan anyway. 
So it's so. definitely catching on. It's in, yeah. <laughs> in some in way, shape, way, or form. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So you are run out of town, essentially, from Japan. No, run out of the country. Run out of the country. And you yeah. go back to the United States, and you end up in San Francisco. Is that right? Yeah, I lived with my, my parents in Mill Valley for a few months, and then I got an apartment in San Francisco. And I started baking cakes again in my kitchen, and back then... You could actually just like walk into a Whole Foods and say, hey, I got these great, beautiful vegan cakes. Do you want them? And I managed, you know, I baked them in my kitchen, delivered them on my Volvo station wagon. And I made, you know, I delivered them. I can't remember. Maybe it was just once a week. I don't remember. All over the Bay Area. Uh, I mean, today, there's no way you could do that. No one's going to buy anything out of the back of your car. But mm. they did back then. Looking back, it's always easy to gloss over the gnarlier parts of anyone's path, including Miyoko's. But the fact is, Miyoko's first business came to a screeching halt because a man wanted to take advantage of her, and a bunch of other men threatened her life. As a result, she ended up leaving her first husband and her home behind. Put yourself in her shoes. Would you have decided to try again? How is it that you weren't like deterred by everything that had happened in Japan? Because I know it's, it's, you know, maybe even a little bit funny to like talk about it now, but at the time you're 29 years old, you had to leave this country. You were on the cusp of what sounds like a breakthrough. You mean you were going to open up your own restaurant. You were literally at the forefront of a nascent vegan movement in, you know, your native, your parents' native country. No, your native country, you were born there as well. And you were on your way and everything comes to a screeching halt. You had to leave behind your partner and your business, your new business, and start all over from scratch in the United States. I think a lot of people would say, I'm just going to do something else. I'm going to do something safe. I'm not going to keep doing this. Did you ever think about giving it up? I don't think the thought ever entered my mind. It seems to be the story of my life that's, that's repeating itself at the ripe old age of 65 now. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, but no, it, it never, I don't know. I have this, you know, I heard one time that women are very resilient because we have this ability, this uncanny ability to forget pain. Mm-hmm. And they say it's biological because if we didn't have the ability to to forget pain, we wouldn't have more than one childbirth. Yeah, we would be extinct. <laughs> we would be extinct because, I mean, childbirth is is the most god-awful painful thing I've ever been through, and I've been through three of them. And I really thought I was going to die the first time I went through it. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be one of those casualties. And, of course, I made it through, and I made it through two other times. But it's so painful. But then the next time you find out you're pregnant, it's like, oh, I'm pregnant again. You know, you forget how painful it was. And I, I think I have... A little bit of that. I, I tend to for, forget the pain quickly. I tend to forget what pro, people... Somebody came up to me recently that I hadn't seen in 10 years at a grocery store. And she said, I just want to apologize to you about what happened on that board. And I had no idea what she was talking about. Like I completely forgot whatever it was that had happened to me on that mm. board 15 years ago or 10 years ago. I have a hard time holding on to grudges or 
bad things, but maybe because it's a self-preservation thing. Like I, I have to keep going. Yeah. You got to just keep moving. Yeah. Yeah. So you get back to the United States and you continue baking cakes. Did you open up a bakery like Madame Miyoko's? Was it a different name? Well, I don't think you, you <laughs> Madame has a different meaning here in the United States. That's very true. So no. <laughs> Uh, I did. I had a. I was lucky to actually share some retail space with a bakery in San Francisco, and so I got to open up a little retail part within. Like it was a bakery within another bakery, and then I actually did open a bakery lunch spot, which morphed into a restaurant called Now and Zen, which opened around the same time as the restaurant Millennium that I was telling you about, which is still here. And then about four or five years into that, a product that I was making at the restaurant called the Unturkey and serving it on Thanksgiving. I ended up deciding to sell that wholesale throughout the country. And so it morphed into a natural products business. Well, so tell me a little bit about Unturkey. Is is that like, is it kind of like tofurkey? Is it like a tofu based, like not not turkey, but sort of tastes like turkey? <laughs> oh no, actually it, it was a seitan product, which ah. had a skin made out of yuba. <gasps> which and, is amazing. But, right. It, I mean, it was the most amazing yuba skin. And so back in the day, there were always debates about, is it, are we getting tofurkey or unturkey? So, there so were you were part products. of that debate? Yeah, yeah. There were only two products av- at the time available in the marketplace. I think ours is better. You know, I became friends with Seth Tibbet, the founder of Tofurkey, because we were our, the only competitor. So anyway, he, he ended up becoming an investor in Miyoko's many years later. And so we're friends to this day. But it was really juicy and succulent. The skin was just like incredible. That's amazing. Anyway, that you, I still you make skin. it every year. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. do you guys still eat it for Thanksgiving? I do. Yeah, I make it every year. Okay, yeah. now I've got to try yeah. it. <laughs> That's incredible. Do you sell it anywhere? No, but, uh, but believe it or not, I still have people asking me, are you going to start making the unturkey again? So people remember, but no, I, I, I'm not going to do that. Oh, so I, see, here's the thing is, again, I, I can't emphasize this enough as a food content creator and as a blogger, you know, I have no background in culinary training whatsoever. So I learn a lot of things from the internet and it was probably like two years ago when I first saw someone wrap some turkey or something with the Yuba and I was like, oh my God, that's so brilliant. Well, this new methodology. Okay. <laughs> I was doing it in the 1980s. Exactly. Beyond Turkey was in my very first cookbook, which was published in 1990. And I'm pretty sure I was the first person to do that. It, it actually all started as a joke in Japan. I had some friends, Japanese friends who said, you know, shichimencho is the word for turkey in Japanese, but they don't eat turkey in Japan. So they were like, anyway, what's it taste like? What is it? And I'm like, I'm vegetarian. I don't eat it. And so... I said, but you know what? I'll, I'll try making a vegetarian one and I'll invite you guys over. So I made, that was my, I just kind of like tried to figure out, okay, if I did this, how would I do it? And I had just learned how to make seitan or gluten back in the day. I didn't know the word seitan, but it, you know, as you know, gluten is used in Buddhist cooking a lot. So I had been eating this at some Buddhist restaurants in Japan. Learned, and so I learned how to make it and I made this turkey and everyone was like, wow. So that's kind of how... It all started because of some the prodding of some Japanese friends. Mm. So you have a restaurant called Now and Zen, yeah. and are you making the unturkey in the restaurant and selling it in the restaurant as well? We were. That's how it started, mm-hmm. and then the orders just ramped up year after year. So I ended up going to a trade show. It was Expo East, ah. and I didn't know what I was getting into, but I went over there and we sold 
I think, $50,000 worth of orders. That seems to be the magic number of every business I start. I get my very first order is like 50000 That must have been so exciting It was for you. very exciting. And I went back home and I was like, oh my God, how are we going to make these? <laughs> so I rented a timeshare kitchen. And then I started faxing these orders over to this distributor, which later became UNFI, which is like the biggest distributor in the United States now, but for the natural foods industry. And the woman called me up and she goes, I don't know who you are, but just stop faxing these orders. And I said, okay. And then the next day I did it again. And then she finally called me up on the third day and said, okay, fine. We'll, We'll carry your product one time, but that's it. And that was the start of the business. You know, we, the Unturkey did really well that, that year. And then I had to come up with other products as I had nothing else to sell the rest of the year. So I came up with three other meat alternatives, the unsteakout, the un- breast of unchicken, and <laughs> the unribs. And they were, they were really good. And so we got on retail shelves that way. There really weren't a lot of meat alternatives at the time. So it was kind of unique. And then we came up with a non-dairy whip topping called Hip Whip. It's cooler than cool. So it was like in a tub. It was the first vegan whip topping. Now, now they're available, but they weren't available at the time. And that was really good too. And when you say we, I mean, who are well, we I'm talking about? I'm the company. So, oh, okay. so the we was, was I had always had an office manager. I had a production manager, me, and then we had the, the production folks. I mean, I did everything, sales, marketing, you know, I'd be on the floor if I had to. So it was a really, it was small potatoes, grew organically, you know, not really investments weren't there. We, there I mean, there was no, everybody was putting money into dot-com. So it's really hard to raise money, you know, to get over the hump, but it was also easier to get your foot in the door back then. Mm. Well, there weren't as many people who were trying to get that foot in the door, right? So what ultimately happened? I mean, why am I not seeing Unturkey on the grocery shelves anymore? Well, it became very challenging. I had two toddlers Mm. and a son who was in elementary school. I was, although I was married, I was pretty much a a single mom. I had a mother who was dying of cancer. Mm. I had another father who was, uh, or my father was also ailing. And we had reached a point of growth. I know this doesn't sound like a lot of money, but, you know, 25 years ago, 19, 30 years ago, I guess, almost 30, 25, no, 25, 20 years ago, mm-hmm. like early 2000s, that's 20 years ago, I couldn't raise money to really take it to the next level. Uh. So we had hit sort of a point of, you know, we had, I don't know, a million and a half a year in sales or something. Which That's was, incredible. Which was actually a lot of money at the time. For a vegan company? For a vegan company back then, it was a lot. But at that point, we had reached a point of growth where the distributors wanted you to start spending ad money or slotting, you know, slotting fees. Like they were letting me get by without it. And I just couldn't raise the money to kind of take it to the next level, to scale it. It was really hard. And so I thought, I'll, I'll sell the company. I had... I'd taken out a loan to start the business and they were going to call the loan. And so I had to sell the company. So I sold it for very, very little, enough to to pay the loan and, and pay all my debts. And really, I didn't make anything from it. When you meet someone who's on top of a mountain and seems to be lit from within with passion, ambition and drive, it's tempting to believe that this person is impervious to second-guessing, insecurity, and imposter syndrome. And so far, I was starting to think that Miyoko was just one of these incredibly amazing persons who never had to experience the crippling setback of self-doubt. But I soon discover that as is almost always the case, the path to the top 
can be lonely and is never linear. Then I kind of fell into kind of a depression for a while. I just felt like, you know, I just can't seem to make things take off, you know, get things off the ground. You know, I just kept thinking about the restaurant thing that in Japan, then the restaurant in San Francisco, which was like barely making it, and then this natural food company. And it, it just didn't seem like, you know, I could hit that right stride. So I just kind of got out of food for a while. I thought, you know, this isn't for me. One of the things that I've heard countless times from particularly women entrepreneurs and business owners is this kind of constant refrain that had they not had the support of their mentors or other entrepreneurs in that same space, other female entrepreneurs, they likely would not be where they are today, certainly would not have been able to hurdle some of the things that happened earlier on. I mean, I think for most small business owners and entrepreneurs, it's pretty predictable that the early years are going to be rough. There are going to be challenges that are completely unforeseeable. But what I'm hearing from you and what I gather is that for you, it may have been uniquely lonely because veganism was such a new thing. There were so few people in that space and it is a uniquely mission centric industry, right? right? And particularly for you, because it was something that you believed in personally from the age of 12 years old. And then on top of that, you're an Asian American business owner, an Asian American female vegan business owner. I mean, how many of those existed? I, I don't think there were any. I mean, I, honestly, and there were very few female entrepreneurs, period. I yeah. mean, there were a handful, mostly white women, but I mean, I would go to the Natural Products Expo year every year, and you didn't see that many women entrepreneurs back in the day. You do now, but you didn't back then. I had a couple of mentors. There was a guy who had started a company called Rice Stream named Ken, who was, who just gave me invaluable business advice about the industry. He was, he was great. It was very, very lonely. There was no camaraderie. There wasn't like a vegan women's support group, entrepreneur support group you could go to. There were no, there are now, you know, there's, other than just chief, there's so many organizations where women can find each other and support each other. Nothing like that existed back then. So you're kind of on your own to tr sort of figure it out. And it sounds like whether or not you intended to do this, whether this was the purpose of it, you stepped away from the food industry after you sold on Turkey. And did you shutter the restaurant as well? Yes. Yeah. I'd, I'd, closed, I'd sold the restaurant. That actually helped me it, it raised cash to start the new enterprise. Did you know that you wanted to start a new enterprise when you well, sold it? Well, it just seemed, yeah, in a way, it seemed like I could reach more people. I mean, that was really my thinking, like, hey, I can sell, you know, the restaurant's limited in terms of how many tickets you can do a day. But the entire country was open if I went into this sort of- Un-Turkey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, production company. And the, and the stay, uh, the right. unstay. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the unribs. Right. But so you sold all of that. You were able to at least pay off the debt that you, the loan yes. that they, they were going to call. And in your mind, what made you realize, hey, I need to step away from this right now? I mean, I think I was in a really dark place at that point. I, I really felt like a failure. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's really easy for women to end up there because, you know, somebody like me, I don't have a business degree. I didn't go, you know, I f figured everything out on my own pretty much. There wasn't a thriving natural foods industry or a network of anyone that you could rely on back then. There weren't books written. 
And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I just don't have the Midas touch and I just need to do something else. So, you know, I ended up working in my husband's law firm. I became his controller for a while. And then I got involved in an aspect of real estate, which was really weird because for the first time in my life, I started making tons of money. I was really good at that. And I did that for a few years. And what made you decide not to keep doing something that was making you a lot of money and that you were really good at? Because money isn't the purpose of my life. And I felt really hollow inside. So I turned about 50 years old and I thought, oh my God, is this the rest of my life? You know, now we had this big, beautiful house in San Anselmo, not far from here. My kids went to private school and, you know, we can go on vacation. We could do whatever we wanted. And I thought, is this it? Like, just all this, these material joys and, but none of it meant anything to me. Mm. You know, I wasn't changing the world and all of a sudden this climate change thing, I started hearing about that and I felt like I wasn't doing what I was, not just I wasn't doing what I was passionate about, but I wasn't adding value to the world. And that's just a concept that I grew up with as a Buddhist, which was, How can you add value to the world? Instead of constantly taking away from it. That's right. Instead of constantly just watching out for your own needs, how do you add value? And for a long time, I thought I wasn't adding value through businesses. And people would come up to me and say, oh my God, thank you so much for the unturkey. I got through Thanksgiving because of it. And, And it was little things like that that made me realize, oh my God, I actually did do something that made someone feel good. But, you know, just doing these real, I was doing 1031 exchanges, like basically it was just a tax game Mm -hmm. for wealthy people and it just didn't have any meaning. So I finally got the nerve and I said, I'm walking away from this and I'm going to see if I can write another book. I'm going to start teaching cooking classes. And that's what I did. I started teaching cooking classes and I started working on artisan vegan cheese. Was there a moment that you can remember where you were like, okay, I'm ready to walk away from this very successful, lucrative career and go back to what I know I'm passionate about. Was there something specific that like gave you the courage to to take that leap or was it sort of like a gradual thing? It was gradual. I kept putting it off and I kept putting it off because the money was good and it was a sure thing. And I I felt like I've never, you know, I'm never going to succeed at business. Is there anything else I can do? And that's why I thought, okay, I'll just, I'll write another book. I hadn't written one in 10 years and I will just start teaching cooking classes at my house. Like kind of like low hanging fruit, right? It was like low hanging fruit. Like, like, no, I I don't need to create an enterprise. I just need to do a cookbook and some teaching. Yeah. But I just needed to get back to a place, especially I I love teaching. I love connecting with people. I love, I, I, I just feel like I'm adding value when I'm teaching a cooking class. Like people are really enthusiastic and happy and they walk away with smiles on their faces, it makes me feel good. And so I I knew that I could do that. And so that's what I went back to doing. I started doing these intensive cooking classes, like these one week long courses at my house, and I would do these one-offs. And meanwhile, I was working on creating vegan cheese because that was something that was on a bucket list. And I felt like I'm over 50, I still don't have vegan cheese and I need to figure this out. And so, um, and when you say I still don't have vegan cheese, do you mean I still haven't created my own line of vegan cheese? Well, that and the fact that in, they didn't exist. I mean, there was something called Vegan Rella that came out in the eighties that was terrible, <laughs> and, you know. And then there was, I think, soya cost, and I mean, there were, you know, and then there was Daya and Follow Your Heart. But I mean, that's what there was, and there was Doctor Cows on the East Coast, but he was really, really, really small. Mm. 
and I felt like I could do a lot more exploration. I, I mean, I felt like there's the, the, the question of fermentation had been hanging around my head for a long time. I'd always wondered, okay, cheese is fermented coagulated milk. Tofu is coagulated milk, but it's not fermented. What if that were fermented and then coagulated? So I started playing around with soy milk and I, my first cheeses were made out of soy milk and soy milk yogurt. Makes sense. Then the raw foodists were playing around with cashew cheese, but they were more like spreads. The ones that I had were like mashed up, you know what I mean? Like yeah. really, and they weren't, it was like, that's a really good start, but it, could it, could you do much more with that? Get more from it. Yeah. yeah. Can you get more from it? Like what if you aged it? What if you did, you know, what if you, anyway, so I just started playing around with all these different substrates. I mean, I was playing around with everything, oats, walnuts, Brazil nuts, legumes, you know, just fermenting this, that, and the other thing in my kitchen. And I, that culminated in writing Artisan Vegan Cheese. And that was, you know, even writing that book took a lot of strength because a lot had changed during the 2000s. That's when the internet got big. That's when all of a sudden there was this thing called YouTube. That's when blogging oh, started. I remember someone said, you should start a blog. And I'm like, what's a blog? <laughs> just like me right now asking you about Instagram or whatever, or what it, yeah. Substack, whatever it was. I don't remember what you said. But anyway, I, I'm just a little late to the party in, in that respect. And so Fashionably I thought, like, late. <laughs> yeah, maybe fashion. And so I thought there's no way there's like all these people that have come on the scene and I'm just this old lady you know, I'm a has-been from the, the the hippie era of the 80s and 90s, you know. No one's going to pay attention to me. But I wrote this book, Artisan Vegan Cheese, and it just, you know, it became kind of a cult classic. A I total guess. cult classic. Yeah. I think it spoke to a need. You weren't yeah. the only one who said, I still don't have cheese. Right. And I'm a vegan and, and I love cheese. Right. <laughs> and so... There was clearly a demand for something, you know, not to say that like follow your heart and Dea and all of those things, they absolutely filled something there, but you know, cheese isn't one dimensional. It's not just mozzarella. It's not just Parmesan. It's not just cheddar. There's so many more, which is something that you were intimately familiar with growing up with all the different cheeses that you had. I couldn't think of a more perfect person to write that book. But you said that it took a certain level of strength. And I wanted to unpack that a little bit. Once again, you're coming from what I think some people would look at and say, well, you were at a place of weakness, right? Because your previous business venture, it didn't scale and therefore you weren't able to take it at that next level. Whether you call that a failure or not, I mean, it was still a million plus dollar business in a completely tiny, tiny, tiny industry. You know, we could quibble on whether or not that's a failure or a success, but in your mind, you had already labeled yourself as, as a failure. I'm not a business person. Nothing I touch turns to gold. I can't do this. Again, what was it that gave you the confidence, the courage, or the boldness to say, all right, I'm going to just forget all that, and I'm going to write this book on vegan cheese, even though I'm technically a real estate agent at this point? Right. Well, the, the book came about because I did a cooking demo at a veg fest, and I served these cheeses for the first time to the public, other than just friends and family. Ah. And I thought people, I really had no idea how people would react. And people were like, oh my God, are you going to write a book? And pe everybody asked me that. And that's really what, and then all of a sudden I thought, wow, maybe I should write a book. And so I called up my old publisher and they were like, they were completely on board. Oh, so amazing. That was, that was really easy. 
and I wrote the book. And then a couple of years later, I started the business. And that was, once again, partly I have to give credit to my old competitor, Seth Tibbet, who of Tofurky, who tasted my cheeses once. We were somewhere, I don't remember where, and he said, you got to do this, Miyoko. Mm. These are so good, and I'll be your first investor. And he really gave me the confidence to get started. Do you think you would have been able to do this without people like Seth in your life? No. I mean, because I was convinced, you know, I have serious imposter syndrome. Really? Yes. I have, I, people don't understand that, but I, you know, I've never someone who's ever gone into life saying, I, I got it. I can handle it. It's always, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to think about it and I'm going to learn as much as I can from others but I've always assumed that there's somebody who comes into the room that knows more than I do about whatever it is I'm doing. And it's been a journey of building confidence. And at the end of the day, realizing that while I've always had this imposter syndrome, I was the one who wrote the book. I was the one who started the business. Like it wasn't somebody else. And so there must be something that I'm doing right. But while I'm doing it, it's it's always been really hard for me to feel good in my own shoes. Mm. The hero saga usually ends with the victor coming home and spending the rest of their life in peace and joy with their loyal dog and family by their side. But I think the hero saga is just a snapshot, perhaps a very exciting, enthralling snapshot, but an incomplete tale nonetheless. Life doesn't conclude with a flourish simply because we elect to stop reading. More importantly, life isn't always fair, and empires can crumble as quickly as confidence. Do you still feel that way today? Even after everything? I mean, you have a freaking empire. <laughs> well, I don't have the empire anymore. I mean, that's the, that's the twist, is that, you know, a couple of years ago I was thinking, before I was ousted from Miyoko's, I was thinking, oh my God, I guess maybe... You know, luck has finally turned for me. Maybe I really did know what I'm doing, and I can't believe how blessed I am. I mean, I really thought, wow, this is finally, you know, I'm I'm 65 now. I was like, okay, this will actually be my retirement. Like, I'm not going to have to worry about things later on, and I'll be in a position that I'll be able to to help animals in, in a bigger way or or other entrepreneurs in a bigger way and help them get off the ground. I mean, that was really kind of where I was thinking. And then once again, you know... I. I kind of lost everything. Like, I, I, ha I don't have a job. And once again, it's like, okay, is this like something I'm supposed to li live, learn in my life where I just keep going through this sort of thing over and over again, even when I finally feel like I've succeeded? Maybe, maybe I am an imposter. And so th that question is like constantly playing in the back mm -hmm. of my mind. Mm -hmm. But then there's a part of me that still feels like, no, I'm not going to lay down my sword and stop fighting. I am not going to behave in the way they want me to behave. I'm going to fight for my rights now, not just the rights of animals, but I feel like I have to fight for my rights, which represents the rights of a lot of other Asian women, because I do not feel that had I been a white man, I would have been, I, I think I would have been treated differently. Mm. Well, I think that's important to kind of think about just looking back on your life, like let's go back to Japan 
when that man said, I'm going to offer you this restaurant and you think, wow, all my dreams are going to come true. And then all of a sudden he pulls the rug out from under you and says, yes, but I want half of your life. Basically, I want half of everything. And he knew he could do that to you because you were a young woman in Japan and he knew he could take advantage of you that way. And at that time you were vulnerable. And I think nobody is going to say, yeah, you should have stayed and stuck it out and fought it. I think you did the safe, right thing, which is to go to, you know, California, go back home and start anew there and the amount of courage it took for you to do that. But I think that throughout our lives, we collect the tools and the resources we need in order to fight fights that maybe we couldn't earlier in our lives. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this fight, it seems like it may have been one that you have had opportunities to learn from in the past to kind of especially equip you at this point to say, okay, I've been fighting my whole life for other people, for animals, for other sentient beings. Now I've got to fight for myself. And I guess the question then is, you know, what do you see in terms of kind of the types of resources that you now have that maybe you didn't in the past to, to protect yourself? I'm going to say in terms of resources, there is a community of people around the world that have been reaching out to me, supporting me, and I am so profoundly, deeply grateful for the love and support that I get all the time. I mean, on on social media, people that the people that don't know me, uh, you know, who write to me, email, DMs, whatever, as well as I'm blessed to have really good friends Mm -hmm. and family. My two daughters, my son and my brother, it's my family. And they are my rocks. But I guess I finally learned that, hey, I actually have added value. And I, you know, for years I didn't, I don't think I ever really believed that until all of this happened. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one thing you you go to a veg fest and people come to you go, oh my God, I love your cheese. Or, you know, thank you so much for everything you do. But it's, it's not the same. I mean, that's great when everything is hunky-dory, but it's so much more meaningful when you're going through rough stuff and, and people say, I support you, I stand by you. It is deeply profound. Well, when you talk about kind of having an impact on the world, which is what drew you away from your real estate practice, which was, hey, I'm, I'm not actually making the world a better place, right? I want to bring value to this world. And you think about what that actually means, right? Yeah, absolutely. People come up to you at VegFest. I was probably that person. I, I went up to you at a festival and I was like, oh my God, I love your butter. Um, so I was, I was definitely part of that. But even beyond that, seeing the community swarm around you when you feel like, hey, down, or you feel like you've been beaten down into some respect by life, by anything, right? I think that there is something very powerful about that. And I've certainly, you know, talked to a lot of people before anything, you know, even just to know the kind of imprint that you have left on the vegan community, you're the first to do so many different things. Like there wouldn't even be vocabulary for, and, and I, I mean this literally with the lawsuit that you brought in, you know, against, you know, California when they tried to, you know, censor your right to use the word butter and required you to 
to use some like crazy, like nonsensical description for the, what is vegan butter, right? I mean, you literally have given us the vocabulary to talk about a lot of these things in a way that makes complete sense and also makes it so much more accessible to people. So when you talk about imposter syndrome, it is so astonishing to me because there's literally like, I can think of maybe like not even a handful of people who have had as much of an impact on the vegan world, but also just a more compassionate world in general, particularly in light of what the work that you're also doing with the sanctuary here. I mean, it's not just the food. It's like every aspect of what you're doing has broadened our understanding of what compassion means. But I think that there are probably a lot of people who are also heartened by the fact that, whoa, wow, the legendary Miyoko also sometimes feels a little bit shaken. In order to be a good artist, you need to remind yourself to step back, way back, to gain that all too critical perspective. In life though, we sometimes forget to do just that, We're so close up to our creations, focusing on the details, that our view becomes blurry and sometimes even distorted. Miyoko struggles understandably with imposter syndrome, especially now, but listening to her story, what becomes undeniably clear is that she will rise to the challenge and in doing so, engender hope in all of us. What do you kind of looking to the future, you know, obviously there's been a pivot in your life, something that you didn't expect, but I see so much kind of hope and potential for what's on the horizon. You've got a cooking show that you're working on on YouTube. I think that's amazing. Having eaten your food, like in earnest in the past couple of hours, I am very much looking forward to learning as much as I can. Tell us about this cooking show. So it's called The Vegan Good Life with Miyoko. And we just launched on YouTube. Right now, we're just going to launch a show, I think, once every two weeks right now. A friend of my daughter's is filming and editing for me. And, you know, it's a a scrappy, let's just say, no-budget show (laughs) for right now. (laughs) Those are the best kind. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's fun. And, you know, what I'm really trying to do is it's not just a cooking show. It's really, what I'm trying to do is build a vegan lifestyle and, and create an aspirational lifestyle that is accessible for everybody. So, and there's scenes down at the the sanctuary, there's animals in it. And I want to bring a sort of an accessible beauty to show how you can make these fundamental foods. I mean, I feel like the entire industry that I've been in is moving towards, it's called CPG, consumer packaged goods. Mm -hmm. And it's all about, uh, you know, I don't know, whatever, easy to prepared foods. And yet there's a movement of people doing more cooking in the kitchen. So I want to get away from prepared foods. And I want to show people how you can make the things that you would normally buy at the store in your home using whole food ingredients, less processing, healthier for yourself as well as the planet, I hope, because there's just less going into it. But not just about the food. It's really like, how do we infuse our lives with this rustic beauty? It doesn't have to be this refined beauty. You know, I don't want tweezer food. I'm not interested Mm. in that. But which is why, you know, the Italian sense, uh, sensibility of La Dolce Vita resonates so much with me because it, it, it's so, I don't know. It's, it's simple, it's humble. Simple, it's humble, it's rustic, but it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And there's an honesty to it. Mm-hmm. There's a truth to it. And we've lost that in, in America, I feel. 
And life is more than burgers and nuggets. Burgers and nuggets have their place, Yes, but, but <laughs> you they, are correct. But, there is more to life than that. <laughs> One of the things that I read a lot. Yeah, I, I read a lot of interviews that you've given over the years. And one of the things that I kept seeing is, well, this is what I did. And I wouldn't do that again, in particular, in relation to your businesses over the years. And we've talked about the ups and downs, the ups and downs. It's like you take two steps forward and then you take a step back, you take another, you know, four right. steps and then, you know, and I feel like there is a sense that like, well, you know, I know so much more now looking back, not sure that that was the best decision for me to make from a business perspective. Given where you are with all the things that you've done, notwithstanding, you know, the ongoing conflict, but, you know, putting that to one side, you have created quite possibly the best vegan butter on the market. You have created the best vegan cheeses on the market. I mean, whether or not you work there anymore, you are still the creator of those things. Is there some thing that you could point back to and say, yeah, I definitely wouldn't do that again. Or I absolutely regret that decision back, you know, 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Or is it more just like, yeah, I understand hindsight is twenty twenty, but it still brought me to where I am today. I think everything is a building block to where you are. You know, there's things about my life that didn't make sense to me 20 years ago, 30 years ago. I'm like, why did I even study this? Or why did I do this? And now it's like, ah, it makes sense. It all flows into the same river of, of life eventually, you know. So I think I've learned from everything. It all, I mean, I'm just thinking about all the little pieces, you know, just the impact, for example, my mother, who was an entrepreneur, it's like, oh my God. She was a single mom who was an entrepreneur. As you mentioned, it was like, maybe I got something from her. Like, all these little things add up. And as you were saying, I think we become more resilient as we age. I tell my, my kids all the time, I feel like when you're in your 20s, everything is like, oh my God, I broke up. My life is over. My boyfriend, you know, like everything is like melodramatic. Disaster. And everything is a disaster. <laughs> and you build up, it's just like doing, you know, a marathon or a CrossFit or weightlifting, you build the muscles for life the, the older you get. Mm -hmm. And so you can take more. And so, you know, maybe that's what's going on right now. I think this is probably, you know, on par, if not worse than, maybe it's worse than what happened in Japan when I was in my 20s with the Yakuza. This has been the hardest life, hardest year for me in the last year, you know, going through divorce as well too. But, you know, I'm not complaining. And I definitely have those moments when I just feel like I'm going to break. Like, mm -hmm. I just don't think I can hang another minute. But then somehow I find the strength to put one foot forward, which is kind of where I am right now. I'm the one foot, I'm in the one foot forward frame of mind. And if I can get that one foot forward, then, then I made it for that day. And you'll get that other one. And I'll get the other foot and then I'll start running. And, you know, I, I have ideas like my whole life, you know, everything about why we're not moving this movement forward. I've been thinking a lot about the entire industry and I, I, I don't think I would ever start another product company. I just, I don't think that's going to change the world. So I'm much more interested in, in how to develop a lifestyle, not a company, but like, how do, you, how do you build a lifestyle and how do you build community? And I think we're all too wrapped up around the idea of, of success. I heard this very toxic podcast. I don't, it just hopped on, and for some reason it just, I think my daughter's Spotify was on my car and this podcast. Gosh, of this, darn it. <laughs> it was really, it was weird. This very successful white male who has his own jet 
was talking about what it takes to achieve success. And, you know, he doesn't put up with laziness and, you know, everybody wants work-life balance. Well, if you don't work 18 hours a day, you can't get where you want to be. And, and I just started, I was just like fascinated listening to this guy and I would have agreed with him maybe 10 years ago. And now I was like, it was making me sick to my stomach thinking, you know, how do you build, like, what's the meaning of life if that's all, if it's just that, you know, you're up in your jet, jet up there at the sky. I mean, where is community? Where is camaraderie? Where is the collaborative mindset? Where is, how do we build society so we're all one? If all, we're all racing to get to the top. Where's justice? Where is, how do we build a just society? And it, it just made me kind of sick that we live in this sort of very, we have this very toxic idea about success equating happiness, and it doesn't. We don't wake up every morning thinking, you know, we have our checklist of what do I need to get through so I can feel like today was successful. But we don't wake up every morning going, how can I be happy today and how can I make somebody else happy? And how can I build community? Why is that not success? Mm. So to me, that's about lifestyle. And I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how it's going to to play out. I mean, the reality is everyone, we all have to be able to pay our mortgage or rent as well too. But, you know, I want to work on, on that. I want a lifestyle brand that is about joy, that is about community, about life. And how do I build that? I think community is one of those things that was undervalued for so long. We essentially sacrificed it you know, on the altar of digital communication, reach, yes. algorithms, views, all of those things, advertising. And as a result of that, we are having to relearn how to define community, yes. how to build it, how to cultivate it, and then how to sustain it, which I think is very difficult. It's one thing to build a community. It's a completely other thing to try and keep it because attention spans are understandably so short now. There's always a glittery, glittery new thing that's, you know, threatening to, you know, disrupt or undermine the underpinnings of a community. Miyoko may not realize this or even really want it, but she is an undisputed leader in many communities, not just the vegan one. So I was curious to hear from her how she would define what leadership looks like. I think one of the things that community needs, particularly now, is leadership. Mm-hmm. And I was curious to hear from you, what do you think it takes to be an effective leader? I don't know that I can answer that in a satisfactory way. You know, there's all the usual things you have to be, you have to learn to listen to people, you have to empower them. And sometimes you have to make hard decisions that are for the benefit of the greater whole than any one individual. And you're going to be, as a leader, you're going to have a lot of fans, but you're also going to have enemies. The The stronger the leader, the more ardent the passion's going to run on both sides of the equation. A leader in a company, of course, can often mean inspiring people enough to add to the bottom line. At the end of the day, those hard decisions oftentimes go against people in order to satisfy the shareholders. A leader in a community is, is, is different, but there's also going to be hard decisions because people aren't always going to agree. And 
you're going to have to, if you are the leader, will have to make those decisions at times. But I honestly, I haven't figured it out because I haven't been a, a community leader yet. And maybe that's my next role. I just know that as a leader, what I want more than anything right now, if I can consider myself leader, is to really have, especially women, vegan women, but all women, really start looking at themselves and examining their pain points, where they feel inadequate, where they feel disempowered, where they all suffer from self-doubt, imposter syndrome. But also, we have to learn to band together to help other women. And I don't think that happens enough. I think women often lack courage. I know I've lacked courage at times, meaning we're often afraid to speak up for ourselves. But when we see injustice done around us to other women, we don't speak out for them either. And we don't speak out for them because we lose brownie points, perhaps. Scarcity mentality. There's yeah. a scarcity mentality. Maybe we don't get the promotion that we think we're going to get, etc. And so there is a community of women I would like to nurture, where if we all start speaking out and speaking up for ourselves and each other, we can build. We can actually advance our movement of female empowerment much more forward than just to talk theoretically about sexism and complain about it on blogs and LinkedIn, but not actually really do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So I think I kind of went off track from your question. No, you didn't. Okay. Absolutely not. I think that what you describe is incredibly insightful about how for better or for worse, women feel like, well, there are only a few spots left for us. Right. Everything else is taken by men. There are only a few spots for us. So perhaps if I stay quiet, right. and if I do as I'm told, and if I don't cause trouble, even if I feel like there's something wrong happening, even if I feel like a fellow woman is not being treated fairly, that I'll just means that I'll get that spot. But perhaps the answer isn't that, but no, we just need to create more spots. We need to create more spots by speaking out and speaking up yeah. and standing up. For, with each other. For each, with each other, mm -hmm. for each other. Yeah. And I, I don't see that happening a lot. Courage is a quality that needs to be nurtured. Yeah. Nurtured and supported and <laughs> all of the cultivated, taught, all of those things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think that could not be a more perfect ending to our discussion, but I wanted to open the floor to you. If there's anything else that you have to say, I know my community is absolutely ravenous to hear from you. <laughs> so if there's anything else that you would like to say to them or any other thoughts, parting thoughts? No, it's, <laughs> I just had a really great afternoon with you and I really am honored to have both you and Anthony come here and was happy to share the sanctuary and the vineyard and all of that with yeah. you. Well, thank you so much for having us. I have to say that I don't usually use cookbooks, to be honest. I am not a cookbook person, even though I wrote one, which sounds terribly hypocritical. But I will say the only cookbook that I ever cooked out of when I first went vegan was yours. And it was, I'm going to get emotional, which I did not expect. When I first met you at Expo East, I was so 
excited to meet the creator of Vegan Butter and all the cookbooks that I was using. And it, you know, simultaneously hurts me, but also I understand when I hear you say that you have imposter syndrome. I totally understand that feeling. But if there's even a small iota that of evidence that can help to bury that imposter syndrome, I, I hope that you take this for what it's worth. Like you have had immense impact on my own life. I would not have been writing my own cookbook had it not been for you, much less any of the other things that so many people have done as a result of your incredible courage and your incredible boldness and that sort of rebellious spirit that emerged when you were 12 years old and you said, I don't care, mom, I'm going to be vegetarian. (laughs) So thank you very, very much. Thank you, Joanne. Yes, that is me getting a little choked up there at the end. I met Miyoko for the first time back in 2017. You can find a picture on this week's newsletter. The Vegan Pantry, her second cookbook, was the very first cookbook I ever bought in my entire life. I made my very first homemade pasta from her recipe to impress my Italian boyfriend. I made my very first vegan madeleines using her butter. It thus enrages me beyond words that a woman of her integrity, generosity, and brilliance has been subjected to what feels to me like a profound betrayal of trust and faith. It's easy to fall into the trap of defining ourselves by the big things in life, but if you've gathered anything from this episode, I hope it's that Miyoko is so much more than vegan butter, vegan cheese, a multi-million dollar company, or any single dispute regarding all of the above, and it would be a disservice to her and the many lives she has impacted to flatten her story. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you found Miyoko's courage as inspiring as I did, feel free to share this episode with anyone else who might also need a mental fist bump or the secret to a vegan pound cake recipe. Until next week, I hope you have a lovely, and wonderful day.